This is Top Floor, Episode 8. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash 8. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now, your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Like many hospitality professionals, Justin Genslinger got his start in the dish pit, helping his parents, Jeannie and Grant, at the Settlers Inn in Holly, Pennsylvania. After a career in financial services that included a successful exit from his own DC firm, Actualize Consulting, Justin returned to Northeastern Pennsylvania to lead the family business, which includes five hotels, six restaurants, multiple vacation rentals, and a variety of complimentary businesses. Of the five hotels that Settlers Hospitality owns, four are historic properties. And during spooky season, we all know that guests are hunting for haunted historic hotels so that they can say they heard something go bump in the night. Interestingly enough, something that Justin and Settlers decided not to market has turned into one of the company's most thrilling and chilling claims to fame. Today, Justin and I are going to discuss how to and how not to market historic hotels for Halloween. But before we start, Justin and I are going to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals who have burning marketing questions. And today's question was submitted by Maya. Maya asks, should I include the history of my historic B&B on my website? I'm nervous that guests think old equals dirty. Pretty good question, Justin. What do you think? Well, I think unilaterally telling the story for any historic property is important. And definitely there's a connotation sometimes with historic properties that they might be dated or not up to the latest trends. And I think the most unique properties are those who have a great history and also adopt best practices and more innovative ideas with technology and design and fuse those together. Guests love hearing the historic story, but they want modern day amenities. So the I think the art of combining those things delivers the best product. And it's something that a non-historic or a current uh, new construction hotel doesn't really have the ability of doing. So it's a differentiator that sets your property apart. Definitely sell it, but don't oversell what you can't deliver. We all know that our historic properties do have some physical limitations. And so I think the art is in the delivery of the product. The answer is yes. I could not agree more. I think one of the things about travel is the emotional connection that travelers make with the place they stay. So I'm not even sure that people care as much about the physical plant as they do about the story they get to tell when they come home. So I agree with you, Justin. Absolutely lean into the history of your B&B. 
So I know that Settlers Hospitality started with one property, the Settlers Inn, which itself actually started as a restaurant before it was a hotel. Can you give us some of the history of that? Sure. My parents were two hippies from Woodstock that were searching for an entrepreneurial idea. And, and I say that with pride, not in any <laughs> negative way. And um, <laughs> But we're absolutely foodies and had grown up like many people just with experience in food and beverage. And so at one point, they had an opportunity to break apart from a group that they had worked with to fulfill their own dream, which was to start their own restaurant and which ultimately led to the start of the hotel. And uh, over the course of 10 years, we're able to acquire that building and really a hands-on renovation to end up with, you know, an award-winning restaurant, hotel, and catering company. So the Woodstock connection helps me understand how they were on such the early side of farm to table. When I read that on your website, I was like, okay, farm to table, sure. But now I get it. It probably really was a la Alice Waters, Chez Panisse, Woodstock farm to table. Absolutely. Some of the same farmers we're working with today have been working the land up the street from Settlers Inn and working with us specifically for 30, in some cases, almost 40 years. Oh, wow. That's really cool. So like many kids that grew up in the business, I know you got put to work at a very young age. What were some of your earliest experiences in the restaurant in the inn? Well, I had lots of titles while growing up in the end. We actually lived upstairs. And so work also served as daycare for a while. It's kind of <laughs> interesting. There was a very well-known glass museum and glass factory up the street where I used to dig in the backyard and I would get what would be like at the beach marine glass. And um, like some kids would have a lemonade stand. I had shoeboxes of my glass and they were like paperweights and I would sell them at the restaurant. When I was like six, but uh, so you started as an entrepreneur, then got in the hospitality business, and then came back. Got it. Understood. It's always been in your blood. But um, in general, I worked in the kitchen back at that time, and um, my dad at first would stand me on a milk crate so I could reach the go button on the dishwasher, and because <laughs> um, it was really just us in the kitchen, it wasn't actually that busy of a restaurant in its very, very beginning during the day. But I graduated to things like Cucumber Chef was one, and eventually I worked the cold side. And um, I think the, the funniest part was one night we were just short-staffed in the front of the house, and I got yanked to put a white shirt on, and I discovered tips. And I pretty much sold my father out as the chef at that point in time because I realized that's where the real cash was, was uh, was in the tips in the restaurant. For a that's amazing. How old were you when you did your first serving shift? I was probably either 13 or 14. Wow. And um, had to navigate some of the age requirements there a little bit. But at the time, family-owned businesses could operate a little bit differently than we do today. I bet you got crazy tips when the people saw your little self coming out with the tray. That's so awesome. Do you think that working in the restaurant and the inn as a young guy influenced your decision to pursue a career in financial services and consulting? Were you like, I never want to do this again? <laughs> well, I can say growing up in a small town, I had some thoughts of, I never want to live here again. Now, of course... 
35 years later, I live here again now and, <laughs> and happily so. But I think as a teenager, I was ready to see something bigger. But I, I would say, actually, I mean, I loved working in the restaurant business and probably, if anything else, some aspect of the service end of the business made consulting and professional services a logical choice versus a more traditional corporate environment. I always think that hospitality is like Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. What was the inflection point or deciding factor for you to come back and join the business? There's some boring ends of that around business that is probably less important. I think as I look back at it now more meaningfully was as a transition or generational succession planning as my parents were ready to, and they still haven't retired in any normal sense, but they were ready to be out of day-to-day operations and in lieu of selling the business, this created a plan where I was able to come back home, which I was looking to do personally, and they were able to have some help and assistance in moving the family business forward. So I want to talk about another one of your properties. The Sayre Mansion was built in 1858 by Robert Sayre. He was the chief engineer of the Lehigh Railroad, executive at what would become Bethlehem Steel, and husband to four different wives. (laughs) When your parents added Sayre Mansion to the settler's portfolio, I think it had been operating as an inn for about 10 years. Had they or had you heard anything about the property's spooky history? I don't think so. And I can certainly say that for me because I I wasn't involved necessarily at the time. I'd actually just graduated about two blocks up the street from Lehigh University. And our family's connection to Bethlehem and Bethlehem Steel was one of the reasons they went into that property. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And there wasn't really as much of a haunted story to it. However, my parents ended up living in the end several days a week when they first were launching it uh, in the transition from the previous owner. And there were just a couple of rooms that seemed a little spookier than others that they didn't prefer to stay in. And then there became an evolution of this story with Robert Sayre's um, one wife. So that's what I found when I was researching that there are two different rooms that are purportedly haunted at Sarah Mansion. Can you tell me what the story is about the haunting, whether you believe it or not? Sure. And it's it's not all that elaborate of a story, but what's I think the trickiest thing is it has multiple reports of the same exact story, uh, which is seeing the reflection of one of Robert Sarah's wives in the same mirror in what was Robert Sayre's wife's bedroom. And they had separate suites within the mansion. And um, so I think that that's kind of unique. And none of it is because of us publishing it in any of our collateral or stories. And it was just organically reported that way. That's so interesting. So I know that paranormal activity has not ever been super high on your list of marketing initiatives. But I also understand that that may have changed recently. Can you tell me what changed your mind? I I think it's our current GM there, uh, Sarah Trimmer, who's just fabulous and recognizes it as a good business opportunity and a way of having fun with it without going over the top in the paranormal 
community. So I think it's a way of having fun, just like a murder mystery might be in a hotel. We've certainly done those and lots of other entertainment or sort of combining lodging with a show and food and beverage. And so I think it's um, an opportunity that she wanted to pursue. And we said, all right, well, let's go ahead and do it. And of course, the very first year it sells out. (laughs) So tell me what all it entails. I really want to come and do this sometime. Well, that you're going to have to look up and see, and see for yourself. But in general, you can probably imagine a, uh, a full night at the end um, with various, not haunted, but sort of storytelling, ghost-type ordeals and basically leveraging the hotel not only as lodging, but also as theater. That area of Pennsylvania is spectacularly beautiful in the fall. And I know that you all try to leverage the season at all of your properties. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other fall and Halloween related activities that you do? Sure. I think Settlers Inn is actually our longest standing tradition. And uh, for actually 41 years now, we've been doing the same storytelling and pumpkin carving event where all of our staff and our team members and family members and friends come together and we carve several hundred jack-o'-lanterns. We place them all over the end, in the gardens, out in the woods, as luminaries, on every table, bodies on the front porch. And we have a storytelling event. This year actually happens to be my uncle, which is kind of special because he's a professional storyteller and a columnist with the New York Times. And so it's a bit of a family affair this year. And so we all get together and carve these pumpkins. And then um, the event itself is we make a sort of harvest-style farm-to-table dinner that we generally do family-style. This particular year, we may not, given the pandemic. And we just share a big meal, and then we listen to some uh, professional adult storytelling that's uh, quite entertaining. And sometimes it's uh, spookier or edgier than others, and uh, we'll have to see it's different every year. Oh, wow. So now I have two bucket list trips on the table for Northeastern Pennsylvania. What's the scariest thing that has ever happened to you while you were traveling? Probably the scariest thing that's ever happened to me was I was flying in a very foggy storm and our instruments went out on a flight between uh, Washington and New York and what seemingly is just a commuter flight. But it was very foggy and the, and the ground was very low and we were coming in and all of a sudden the plane went right back up in the air because it was a little lower than it thought it was. And so we turned around and went right back to Washington and got guided in under uh, oh a more visible flight plan. So that was definitely the scariest thing that ever happened with me traveling because oh. I thought it might have been my last flight. <laughs> That is terrifying. I have chills just thinking about it. Well, I'm glad there wasn't a ghost in the machine. (laughs) Justin, we try hard to ensure that our listeners come away from every episode of Top Floor with a couple of specific things that they can try in their businesses. So I'm going to ask you some questions that will hopefully come up with some tips and tricks for folks to try. Each of your historic inns has a personality of its own and offers a different type of special event. How can owners with similar properties in their portfolios keep them distinct? 
I think being true to the self of place and the history, especially in a historic hotel, is the best way of doing it. So at Settlers Inn, we have a very traditional arts and crafts lodge, and we do things that are more formal, a little bit more fine dining, whereas we have an old factory that's an industrial contemporary, and we try and make our events you know, a little bit more modern, geared towards a different vibe, you know, more uh, types of music. And so we try and keep the sense of place of whichever property we're on. Could be our family resort on the lake is all about vintage boats because you feel like you're in a 1950s lakefront resort. So I would say that would be my best tip is just recognize where and when your property was and do something really fun around it. I like that. What about helping independent hotels stand out in a sea of brands? So I think this is a really burning question, especially as we're emerging from the pandemic. People are deciding whether or not brands for their unique hotels make sense. Any tips for how you make your independent hotel shine in that landscape? Sure. And I do think that it's a very compelling argument to think about the power that some of the bigger brands bring to a hotel. But sometimes it also strips the um, unique experience of what that hotel can be. And so we try and keep, you know, the uniqueness of every one of our hotels. We don't put our hospitality group moniker or flag, you know, on the front porch. We keep every place unique to its own property. And what we found is that, especially with our younger travelers, which will be with us for decades to come, looking for unique opportunities and finding that customer and what is on trend with them is the best way of competing with the brands because they come back. That makes a lot of sense. Labor is such a hot issue in our business right now. How do you keep your teams happy and avoid losing them to maybe a larger hotel or a branded hotel, something like that? Yeah, I think labor is by far the biggest issue facing our industry right now because not only are we competing with ourselves, but we're competing with other industries where there's an exodus and it's known from hospitality. So we've done things that are, I mean, money certainly helps. So, you know, we've adopted a living wage program across our company, which is nearly double our state's minimum wage. And uh, we just tell that story to our guests and that it does have some price compression. And we just say, hey, you know, our team needs to live and work and play in the same community that you visit. And the real estate prices and the cost of food and other things have gone up to the point where traditional hospitality wage model just does not work. And then we do other things that are just more fun. We close three times a year and do all hands on deck team building events. We go down the river, we go out on the lake, we throw a barbecue. Um, we do other things that are not typical for you know every single hospitality group to compete with bigger companies like you know, matching retirement benefits is one example. And then we have a lot of fun in our properties. So we also create a much higher than average employee discount. So on people's night off, if they want to come back to work as a guest, they don't get 10%, they get 
50 or 75%. Wow. So that as long as it's at our cost and they can enjoy the time, then that's another thing that we can give them. And um, we have multiple properties. So they often make the team member may like to go to the one down the street as opposed to the one where they work themselves. And so those are just ideas that we've thrown out that seem to help. I bet that employee discount makes your team members such good advocates for your different properties, restaurants, et cetera, too, because they truly know what they're selling and servicing. Not They don't just have sort of this, what you told them idea. They've really experienced it. Yeah. They know both sides of the table, so to speak. So I think that when they enjoy the product themselves, you can always sell something you like better than selling something that you know, you've just been told a script. Yes, absolutely. So now is the part of the show, Justin, where you need to reach into your desk drawer and pull out your crystal ball because I'm going to ask you to predict the future. <laughs> and if you're right, 10 years from now, you'll win a fabulous prize. That is a total <laughs> lie. So looking ahead, as we move beyond the pandemic, do you think more hotel owners will choose brands or more branded hotels will go independent? I've heard arguments for both. And I'm, I'm curious about you from the independent operator perspective, what you think. Um, I personally believe that uh, the industry will leverage the marketing benefits and loyalty programs of brands or of small groups and associations, which is the space we play in. So we try and get together with other hoteliers and stay independent, but offer some collective purchasing power or you know loyalty programs for our guests, because I think the guest experience will go towards the independent and the brands will try and compete by offering the lifestyle experiences. And so I think the soft brands will do the best in the bigger hotel space. And I think independent brands that have a unique story to tell that has a history or a style or a, a very unique location will probably do the best in the independent world. Do you have any predictions specific to the future of independent hotels over and above the fact that we? know that they are pretty appealing from the guest perspective. I think that you'll see lots of independent properties become consolidated in small groups, whether by ownership or by association and uh, within a particular market or travel destination, or it could just be by relationships. So we've been doing things like guest chefs from other properties. And I think that Independence recognizing there's a threat from the brand will do the best if they can pool their resources somehow together. And I think associations are one of the things that will work for that. That's a smart idea. What is next for you and what is next for Settlers Hospitality? Well, what is next for uh, Settlers Hospitality is definitely looking across um, other regions. So we're we're looking to grow our group of uh, independent properties, but deploy the same service levels and attract to the same historic and leisure destination locations like we have today. And that's both in the hotel space as well as the 
uh, vacation rental space, which I know is a bit controversial, but we operate in both and think that the future is both of them combined for independence. I completely agree. I was going to ask you if you had any plans for expansion outside of Pennsylvania. So it's interesting to hear that you're thinking about it. I'm going to muse on where I think you should go next. It will be near water somewhere. Okay, folks, before we let Justin go, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Justin, what is a story you would only tell on the loading dock? Well, when we lived above the inn and I was a young teenager, I had not become all that wise and was a little bit self-confident. And I had always wanted to parachute. So I climbed to the 75-foot peak of the roof on the inn uh, with my best friend, who was actually the best man of our wedding. And uh, we grabbed king sheets from one of the rooms. <laughs> and we sat ourselves up to parachute down to the parking lot and surprised my mom, who was working the front desk. And so somebody saw them, goes in and says, oh, man, there's two young kids on the roof of the... And it looks like they're going to jump. And... She climbed three floors, I think, faster than she ever could have in her life, yanking our butts down off of the roof. <laughs> and uh, probably a good thing she did. I'm not so sure that cotton sheets would make the best parachutes. So, Oh, my <laughs> God. That is crazy. I was, I'm was. i so glad she pulled you down because I was afraid this story was going to end with two broken legs. <laughs> so thankfully, you did not parachute. Have you ever parachuted since? Have you ever been a skydiver or parachuter in anything like that? No, I've kept it on the ground, but my favorite hobby is sailing. So it's uh, somewhat um, related. <laughs> so like water parachuting. Yeah. Um, have you seen 100 Foot Wave on HBO? No. It's about big wave surfers. So it's their quest to surf 100 Foot Wave. And on the surface, if somebody gave me that description, I would never want to watch it. But watching it is unbelievably spectacular. I think you would really like it. It's like, <gasps> you know what I mean? Like sort of that sailing feeling. I don't know. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Justin Genslinger, thank you so much for being here. I know our listeners got some great tips and I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Thank you so much for having me. This episode is sponsored in part by She Has a Deal. She Has a Deal offers inspiration and education to achieve the goal of increasing the number of women hotel owners and developers. With pitch competitions for both early career and experienced women, programs channel the power of collaboration and mentorship by connecting experts and newbies, experienced investors, and hotel operations leaders. Learn more at shehasadeal.com. Thanks for joining us today. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash eight. Top Floor is a production of Long Live Lodging. Our elevated elevator music was composed and performed by John Albano, designed by Neha Patel and Jason Lum. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues 
after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 